Before we begin today's episode, I want to let you know that it is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or any online store idea that you have kicking around in your head. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. Try Squarespace at squarespace.com and enter the offer code WORDS at checkout to get 10% off. That's WORDS, W-O-R-D-S, 10% off, squarespace.com. Do it up. Squarespace, build it beautiful. I want to tell you about an amazing sponsor that we have this week, Creative Live. Visit creativelive.com backslash audio to learn from the best people in these respective fields, songwriting, engineering, mixing, and mastering. If you want to learn anything about that stuff, you go there. Creativelive.com backslash audio. Now on with the program. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of 100 Words or Less, the podcast. I am your host, Ray Harkins, eternally present on a week-to-week basis to bring you interesting conversations with people who are creators of cool, independent art that have been heavily influenced by the independent music scene, whether it's punk, hardcore, whatever you'd like to call it. They are doing real stuff, whether still active and playing in bands and doing record labels and that sort of stuff, or the guest this week is Alex Goldman. He does an amazing podcast called Reply All, which is basically about the internet and all of the weird and wacky things that happen on it. Because if you spent any time on there, you're tripping across stories on a weekly basis that you're like, man, I wish someone did some investigative piece on this particular corner of the internet and you have this show. So listen to Reply All if you're not doing that. Alex, in some previous interviews and actually in pieces of the show, he's mentioned that he's had some affiliation with, you know, being punk, being affiliated with the music scene. And so I was like, hmm, there's something to this. And so, you know, I like to uh, discover what I'd like to call secret punks. You know, these are people who are doing really, really cool things that might not be directly tangentially connected to music and the independent scene that they grew from, but they're applying the same principles that they have learned to it. You know, like Roman Mars, a previous guest on the show. You can dive back a couple, I don't know, 50 or so episodes. Can't remember exactly where he was at, but he's an example of another person taking what they've learned in the independent music system and applying it to what they're doing now. So anyways, I know it's a long preamble, but that's why Alex is on the show today. And I'm very excited about that. So I'm, I'm a little sick. I apologize. My head's a little clouded from a sinus infection. Just got back from Paris. Did a nice little week-long vacation with the wife. Saw the Eiffel Tower. Saw the Arc de Triomphe. Saw the Louvre. Saw Mona Lisa. Did all of the Paris touristy things. And then also did some off-the-beaten-path things, like trying to visit record stores in August. That doesn't happen because everyone is off. Everyone takes like a full-month vacation if you are an independent business owner there. So I tried to visit a lot of record stores but couldn't, and that was disappointing. Uh, Did hit up a few cool coffee shops. There was one in particular that I'd like to highlight because I just thought it was such a really interesting and revolutionary idea. It's called the Anti-Cafe. And uh, it's actually not too far from the Louvre Museum, for those of you who are really trying to pay attention to the Paris landscape, as it were. So what they do is they charge for, like, internet time. So you go in there, and you get a card. Basically, the coffee and snacks and everything else that they have in there is technically free. You just pay, I think it was four euros an hour to hang out, and it's kind of like a co-working space, but, you know, it's mimicking a coffee shop. So... I was like, wow, this is awesome because there's a lot of co-working spaces that I've seen here in Southern California and New York City, but you know, their whole thing is like, yo, we'll give you a desk. You can work, hang out, do that. But this one was meant to be like a cafe. So I just thought it was a really, really cool idea. And uh, I hung out there for a few hours and, uh, you know, made sure that my life back at home was not falling apart as I was busy enjoying the awesome things that Paris had to offer. So I'm in New York as I am releasing this episode. So I'm, I'm going to be really glad when I'm not traveling because I'm basically exhausted. But there's so much cool stuff happening with the show. It's honestly too fast for me to even keep up with it. We obviously are bringing on some incredible sponsors, and I'm really excited about that. And uh, anyways, without further ado, 
Here is my discussion with Alex Goldman from Reply All, and I'll talk to you after the jump. Obviously, me with many other people were introduced to you via Reply All, the podcast. I immediately enjoyed the show and loved what you were doing. You know, it, it was just one of those things. I, I, I don't do deep dives on every single host of a podcast I listen to. But then uh, our mutual friend, Roman Mars, who I've had on the show, they was kind of tagged in a, uh, a Twitter comment in regards to like, oh, hey, I, I listened to the interview that Ray did with Roman. And it's pretty cool. Maybe, you know, Alex and some other people should talk about this sort of stuff. And so I was like, I come to discover that you have quite a, a large history with that. And I put you in a category, like basically you're, you're like what I like to call a secret punk where it's not overtly broadcast, but you obviously have a rich history with it. Uh, do you, I presume in the uh, public radio world, there isn't a lot of people that have that background or am I just uh, misrepresenting that? I think you'd be surprised actually. I mean, PJ is not, he's not a musician, but like, I think he grew up listening to like 90s hardcore, like Gorilla Biscuit, stuff like that. Uh, he was like into that sort of new hardcore, the kind of stuff that I, I never really got into. I only sort of know about in passing, but uh, I do I do think that there's something... There's something about the politics of punk, especially hardcore, that seems not so mutually exclusive with sort of the politics of public radio. You know what I mean? 100%. I mean, I've come to find that a lot of people that I've had on the show that specifically do travel in that world, whether it's like, you know, like I've mentioned Roman before, and then I've had Dan Carlin on the show before too, because he comes from like the early 80s punk scene. And it's like, you just can't help but equate the, oh yeah, the DIY nature of podcasting and the DIY nature of putting out your own 7-inch. But, I mean, not even that. It, there's, like, also, I think public radio, there's sort of, like, a democratic socialist component to it. I mean, I feel like the spe- <laughs> the spectrum of, like, leftist politics, it, like, when you're a punk, you start as, like, a straight-up anarchist. And then you slowly start moving a little bit to the right. And I think that NPR is definitely on that leftist socialist spectrum. It's all about sort of enriching the public good and sort of contributing to the community. And so I think a lot of people who come from public radio definitely... <laughs> Definitely have that mindset and definitely come from that sort of political viewpoint. Yeah, there are certain moments in your life where you do reach that fork in the road where it's like, okay, do I continue alongside this anarchist punk route and I will obviously have to dumpster dive for food and not be a part of society? Or you could like, well... Maybe I could do this because, like, I think I can make a larger effect by doing this other thing. Right, exactly. <laughs> so you yourself, born and raised on the East Coast, or where did you uh, where did you kind of cut your teeth? I actually grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan. So oh, I grew okay. up in the Midwest, home to uh, a lot of great hardcore and punk bands. Sure, sure. Um, so, and what was your family structure like growing up? Like mom and dad, brothers and sisters? How was the uh, the household? Well, I had an older brother. Uh, my parents were divorced when I was nine. My older brother's five years older than me. And I think that I owe my older brother. My older brother sort of cycled through musical taste very, very quickly. He started... I don't know. I'd say when I was, when he was in junior high school, he was like listening to the Sex Pistols and then he got bored with 70s punk and he got into like hardcore and then he kind of got bored with that. And then uh, I don't know if you remember the sharp movement. Absolutely. So my brother was a sharp. Oh, wow. Um, he was, which was, he was really committed then. Yes. Which was very embarrassing for my Jewish dad to have a skinhead for a son. <laughs> but uh, my brother was a sharp, so at, when he became a sharp, he got really into ska, and then he joined the Marines and just listened to the Allman Brothers from that point on, basically. That's a, that's a pretty pretty drastic shift. Did you ever uh, kind of explore that with him? I think that he just kind of lost interest in, like, he became less interested in music. Music is identity when you're in junior high and high school, and then when you grow up, the military became his identity. Right. And so were you primarily with your, your dad or your mom or did you kind of split time between both because of the divorce? Uh, I was mo- I was pretty much with both because they both lived they both lived in the same town. So it was really easy for me to go between the two houses. Mm-hmm. So I was I was with both of them. My brother lived with my mom and I tended to live with my dad. And then when my when my brother joined the military, I, I kind of started going back and forth more often. You were crediting your brother, uh, your older brother, for being the person who was uh, kind of, you know, passing down his records and passing down his uh, his trip. What, what sort of stuff did you kind of glom onto initially, like when he, he started to pass that stuff down? Was it like everything that you were identifying with or were there things that you just couldn't grasp initially? So I, I think that saying that it was passed on to me is a bit of a misnomer. My brother actually 
just went away to the Marines when I was probably, I don't know, 12 or 13. And he left behind all these cassettes, cassettes that some of which were unlabeled. And so it was like, I got stuff that was like the Misfits, um, Negative Approach, Ann Arbor Band, Minor Threat. And and then there was some really weird stuff like rap rock stuff, like biohazard, just stuff that didn't make any sense. But, you know, like when you're kind of carving out your understanding of music, it's like you try everything a little bit. So there were like tapes that were like side A was biohazard and side B was bad brains. It was very weird. Right. You kind of view music as just this this gigantic world and sampler. Like you don't know about a scene, you know, when you're like 11 yeah, or 12. Totally. totally. You, you just start to drink it in and then all of a sudden you're either your friends tell you or then once you start to attend shows you realize there are these hard divisions between you don't go to this show anymore dude come on yeah yeah i would be caught dead <laughs> at a biohazard show but of course i'm gonna go to this you know local hardcore band or whatever i remember there was a band when i was in high school called the corruption committee and corruption committee was like a rap rock band and when i was like 13 or 14 i was like seeing live music is amazing i don't care what i'm watching it's just amazing to see music i'm so in love with this and then by the time i was like 16 i was like corruption committee sucks man right. i'd never be caught dead at their shows totally. uh, <laughs> yeah you have to you have to make those proclamations strong and hard because that way <laughs> that way no one really understands no one's ever able to link you to that and so so yeah it's, it sounds like you were you were kind of uh you know having to do the research and discovery obviously on your own with this you know this blank tape madness of being like okay i think that this is this band and and uh maybe this sounds more like this i get i understand this band i actually was doing a thing where i would play it i would play them for other people and then they would be like, oh, yeah, this is so-and-so. And and that's sort of how I figured out who who was what. I'm sure as your, your, your parents started to see that you were interested in this weird stuff that their older son was already, uh, you know, kind of passed through, did, was there ever a cause of concern as far as like, oh, I don't really want him going down this path of, of you know, whatever, become, you know, like your older brother becoming a sharp and that sort of stuff. Was there any uh, friction in the house because of that? Uh, my brother paved the way for me in, in as far as like it was really hard for him to, he didn't get away with much. And he also was like a serious troublemaker. And, you know, it's like the first child, he, he goes out and the first child is like the one who gets the most attention. And also he just happened to be like a bit of a troublemaker. So he would get in trouble every once in a while for getting into fights and things like that. So by the time I came along, they were like, well, you're not getting arrested. So like, we don't, we don't care what you do. <laughs> just don't get arrested. Right. Um, the bar was so, lowered. Yeah. The bar was much, much lower. It was much easier for me to get away with stuff. So like they didn't care what I was listening to. Got it. <laughs> you were, you were given the pass. Totally. Totally. I don't know. I mean, maybe if I was listening to like Judas Priest or something, they might've been worried, but I don't think they were, they were that, they were that worried. Yeah. Cause you always, I'm sure you've, you've encountered friends that have had, um, you know, parents that were either more strict in some capacities where it was the, I have to make sure that there's no parental advisory label on this or I need to read the lyrics in order to make sure that there isn't anything objectable on this. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think that my parents blanched a little bit when I wanted to get the Body Count album. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They have a song called Cop Killer on there. <laughs> <laughs> but other than that, they didn't seem to really care. They certainly didn't care when I when I was, when I was my brother was listening to Fuck the Police. Right. So... <laughs> <laughs> totally. And you, there, there was always that, that, um, uh, I guess trepidation when you did, you know, buy a tape or a record or whatever, and it had had an offensive song title. That's where it's just like, Oh dude, my parents are going to see this immediately. Like this is what's going to get me in trouble. You know what I was really worried about was, uh, in utero. Cause it had this on rape me on it. I was like, there's no way they're going to let this keep stay in the house. But right. like, I just sort of secreted it up to my room and there was never any problem. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, and so I, as you started to, uh, like you alluded to, develop your own identity in you know, junior high and high school, what sort of kid did you find yourself being? You know, were you uh, the proverbial uh, indoor kid playing uh, you know, video games and sticking to himself or were you uh, the outgoing sports archetype guy? Where did you uh, find yourself landing on that spectrum? I, w I would say that I was n more an indoor kid. I was pretty nerdy. I was not particularly popular, but it wasn't a, it wasn't a situation where I mean, you know, I grew up in like a liberal liberal college town, and like there's a lot more leeway to be a weirdo in towns like that than there are in smaller towns. Like no one, I wasn't like particularly lonely or out there because like I wore gigantic like. I wore, I feel like 
I wear like nerdy hipster glasses now. And back then the glasses I was wearing were like the giant cartoon version of them, like giant granny glasses. They were just totally ridiculous. And no one, no one, no one really cared. I mean, everybody was pretty cool about it. So yeah, I was definitely like a nerdy kid, but I don't feel like I was a nerdy kid who was particularly like an outcast. You know what I mean? No, absolutely. I mean, I think it's an important point you bring up in regards to being in a college town because I think there's, uh, I mean, my own personal experience is being raised in Southern California and, you know, that's such a hodgepodge of of people that, you know, generally speaking, you get kind of left alone. But then in certain other areas where it's like people who were very similar to me were just like, oh, dude, high school was hell. I barely made it through. And I'm like, oh, totally. Oh, I guess that that does happen. But then, yeah, the, the college towns where it's like, you know, whatever going through lawrence kansas you're like why are there bands from here and then you're like oh because it's a college town because there's places to play where did you grow up um more particularly like in in like the huntington beach newport beach area so like definitely in orange county so my my dad lived in san juan capistrano for 10 years so i've been out there quite a bit yeah absolutely yeah so i was 20 minutes uh 20 minutes north of that so yeah i'm glad you brought up the college town experience because there's definitely like you said more leeway for people to (laughs) like you said leave you alone and not pick on you where it's like what is this kid getting into there were people who like did pick on us but it was more like rather than feeling intimidated it was more like a challenge for us to up our annoyance factor like uh there was this kid named I wonder if I should even use his name. <laughs> there is this kid named there's this kid named Ryan and he just thought that we were the most like annoying, self-satisfied, obnoxious dweebs. And there was like a talent show, and for the talent show, our idea was we would get we would go up there and play three guitars and we would just let them feedback and then we would lean our guitars against our amplifiers and walk off stage. That was our show. And we were going to le- we were just going to walk off stage and leave them making noise until they cut the power or they turned off our amplifiers for us. Sure. Uh, so we did that. I think it lasted under under three minutes. Like it lasted very, very brief. And right. then as we were as we were coming back to the stage to take all our stuff off, we dedicated our performance to Ryan. He was not very happy with that. He came out afterward and was like, why the fuck you got to say my name on stage, motherfucker? And we were just like, you're so ridiculous. I can't believe you're so mad about it. But I knew you would get mad about it. Right. So that's why we did it. <laughs> that was the button I was trying to press. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, that's that's incredible. I love how everyone, um, especially that that kind of you know uh, gets interjected within the independent music scene, always has that sort of definitive talent show experience. Whether it's like them performing or them watching like an older you know an older classmate play. Like, I mean, that, it sounds like what you experienced was obviously um, you know you were merely just like you said trying to annoy everybody. Where it's like here we're going to be like this art installation <laughs> when we don't even know what that actually is yet. Well, you know, I, I mean. There's this awesome. There was this awesome record store in Ann Arbor at the time called School Kids. And School Kids, uh, there was this guy who worked there. His name was Marlon Magus. His name was Jim Magus, but he went by the name Marlon Magus. And he and this guy named Pete Larson ran a record label called Bulb, and it was mostly like avant noise stuff. And so we would go to the record store and be like, "What should we listen to?" And then he'd be like, "Check out this Borbe Tomagus record. It's from Japan." And so we would we got into some really out there shit because this guy was like he was sort of one of those musical swamis who would be like, yeah, listen to this album by Boredoms. It'll blow your mind. And we were like, all right, sure. Whatever you say. Whatever you say, Jim. So it's like we were listening to like pretty difficult music early on. And I think the lesson I took from that was like you don't have to know how to play an instrument to make music and music doesn't have to be fun to listen to. So – very early on, I was before I before I'd actually learned how to play guitar. I mean, I had a guitar and I was taking lessons, but before I could do anything other than sort of like farmer chords, you know, I was playing in a band called Lab Lobotomy. It was me, three other guys. Uh, this is oh, by the way, this is my confession, my big my big famous person confession. Okay. One of the one of the bandmates, one of my bandmates in Lab Lobotomy was uh, Andrew W K. Oh. That's a good connection. So it was me and Andrew, my friend Alan, who is now a philosophy professor, and my friend Jamie, whom I've lost touch with. At first I was playing trumpet in the band, which was just like a, an old dented trumpet I would just bleed into. And then it was all improv. It was like we improvised everything. And I think that like – I just think that like the the 
the music scene in Ann Arbor is like, oh, this is so cute. These 14-year-old kids are just like making this ungodly racket. So we played a couple shows before we broke up. We were together for about a year and a half. And so, and was that by all stretch of the imagination your first, I guess, real band? Yeah, that was my first band. The, there was a there was a band that was around briefly before it, which contained all the same members minus Andrew, which was called Beachhead, and it was like it was like um, <laughs> I don't really know how to describe it. Sure, it, it, what, it were you, what were you attempting? It, it, what were you attempting to sound like? Because usually, when you're that young, you're like, okay, here are these like four bands that I want to sound like, and then you just do like a, a C-rate version of that. I don't know. You know, I think it, we wanted it to sound like punk but like since we all were like so bad it just sort of sounded more like nursery rhymes like you just can't you don't really know how to play the instrument so you're like oh i can play c and then e and then c and then e again i mean that sounds all right right so it's like you it was just like those over and over again it was charming but it wasn't wasn't very good right right i I think it's really interesting that you had that um i guess early revelation in regards to music being challenging because i definitely you know uh, can attest to that where it's like the uh you know my musical swami in in the record store that you know very similar to your experience was like hey listen to neurosis and like you know i got like whatever through silver (laughs) through silver and blood and i was like dude i don't understand this at all but then times of grace came out and then i it it washed like a wave over me and i was like oh i get it now but like you said it's like you have to have those those people to show that to you because otherwise it's like you know i'm never going to pick up a record like that but I I also think that like in the same way that you can't conceive of algebra when you're like seven years old, <clears throat> there's like certain music that just can't penetrate your brain when you're of a certain age. Like I remember I remember I had a friend whose dad was like a local music reviewer and for my 11th birthday, he gave me a Pixies album and I was like, this is bad music. I don't understand this. I don't like it. Totally. And I put it. I put it on my shelf. I didn't think about it for like four years. And then I pulled it down again. I was like, oh, yeah, Josh gave me this record. I should listen to this. And I listened to it and I was like, oh, my God, I've owned this for years and I haven't touched it. This is ridiculous. Um, So I think that there's like just – there's stuff that at a certain age – is just hard to get into. And I think that the reason that I liked being in that noise band was because I was like, it wasn't so much because I was like, I want to go home and listen to this album again. Uh, I don't want to go home and listen to this recording we made this afternoon again. It's more like I'm creating, like I'm making something. I'm putting something out there. It feels, it like feels really good to be a part of something. Mm -hmm. There's definitely um, that feeling of, I wouldn't even call it superiority, but this, this, this feeling of like, all my classmates in high school aren't doing this thing, but I am. Totally. And then you just feel immediately like, dude, I got some cool stuff going on. You guys have, you're not even on my level. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. That's right. I felt that. <laughs> right. Um, and so uh, because obviously you were taking, you know, pretty deep dives into music in, in, in high school and obviously performing and everything like that. Did you care about school? Did you, you know, were you a good student, I guess? Did you apply yourself, Alex? <laughs> I was a terrible student. Okay. I, was ju- I was a terrible student. I was sort of a kid who like if I couldn't do anything, if I couldn't do something perfectly, I would give up on it right away. And once, and like, I think that school for the first, like up until junior high, up until like my, up until like eighth grade was actually pretty easy for me. And then when it started to get challenging, I was like, well, I can't do this perfectly. So fuck it. So (laughs) I would go to classes I liked. I would go to art and English and shit like that. And then I just wouldn't show up for any, I, I would go to gym actually. I didn't mind gym, but like math and science, I didn't care for. So I just didn't go. So I was a bad, I was a pretty bad student. It was either A's or F's, nothing in between. Exactly. (laughs) Um, and so uh, as you started to, uh, you know, gain more experience by, you know, playing in bands, like, so was this, when was the, the, the first band started? Was that like in freshman year or was that like in junior high? First band was started my freshman year, sort of toward the end of my freshman year. Once, once, once it was like established that I could be in a band, then I was just in like a million bands concurrently. Right. Um, it, it was like, I was like, okay, well, I can always, I can do this. I'll just be in every band. So it's like the members of Lab Lobotomy would sort of, we would section off and start sort of side projects together. And then I started like a pop punk band with some kids that was sort of like my main band through high school. Um, I think when I was 15. Okay. What was that called? It was called Blue Onion, which if I 
had my way, it would be called something else. I kept trying to get us to change our name, but once it was set, it was set. That's such a fucking dumb name. <laughs> well, such a bad name. I, to, to be fair, if you did not tell me that that was a pop punk band, I don't think I would have been able to label that. Because, you know, usually it's pretty apparent when you're naming bands when you're 15 or 16 years old where it's just like, you know, Jimmy and the Two Guns. Like, okay, that's a ska yeah, right. band or whatever. Mm-hmm. But like Blue Onion, I don't know. I, I that would... That, I guess I like it because of the ambiguity. That's pretty much it. So we were, when we were in high school, there was this there was this uh, place called Dairy Mart, and they sh- they sold in like gallon milk jugs. It was like this blue sugar water drink that was called Blue Heaven, and it just it like tasted like battery acid. It was horrible, and it was like this thing where like if you if you were too drunk and you knew you had to puke, you would go get some Blue Heaven and drink it, and you would puke. It was like that was the, yeah exactly. So we called it Blue Onion. That's where the name came from. Okay. It was a very cute in joke, but it's the fucking dumbest band name ever. So <laughs> sure. Um, and and what uh, you, you know, seeing that you were sampling so many uh, you know different music scenes and obviously uh, you know playing a bunch of different styles, did you particularly identify with one uh, you know scene? Like you know, were you a Liberty spiked Mohawk dude, or were you, you know you were a straight edge kid, or like what did you uh, what did you find yourself being? Well, I definitely wasn't a straight edge kid. Sure, tell you that much. <laughs> um, uh, I think that like I think that like I was just like a kid with <laughs> there's this there's like a style of dress that is common across the midwest which is like rivers cuomo glasses huge sideburns wallet chain shaved head i feel like to this day i go back to michigan and i see people who look exactly like i did when i was 18 totally so that's just like what i look like i just look like a punk kid not not particularly there was no not, no particular distinguishing marks um i didn't have a mohawk or anything but like i was in this pop punk band and i was also in like I don't know what what I would call it. So like the other big musical influence aside from this guy Jim Jim Magus was on the Touch and Go Records catalog. Basically Touch and Go I I found my way to like Jesus Lizard and Shellac when I was in 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 high school and like um I was just it was before the internet really. So I would just sit there and order everything off of their uh out, out of their catalog. Um I, I I was in a band that was sort of heavier and kind of like Jesus Lizardy and very uh, tortured uh, alongside Blue Onion that was called The Butler. It was me and my friend Alan again, who is a philosophy professor, and uh, my friend Michael Troutman, who was in a band called Awesome Color fairly recently. Awesome Color, they were like a psych rock band. They were on Thurston Moore's record label. So it was the three of us. uh, And that was sort of like artistically probably the most satisfying band still not we still weren't that great but right uh it, it was it was i think the most fun band to play in i i like that you mentioned the the uh, catalog experience because i definitely think that there's something that's so um you know i i really don't try to tread on nostalgia because i find that to be so repulsive especially when you're looking through your your rose-colored glasses about how sweet the scene was when you were you know 16 17 years old but there, there's something that was so tangible in regards to you ordering a record based off description alone and then you getting it and being like dude this sucks. Like this thing sucks. And I just wasted $12 in this tape or whatever it was. And then not, and then not having any recourse, you couldn't return it. I mean, you, you could, if you really wanted to spend the return postage or whatever, but that process, like, you know, you got burned a few times before you realized like, okay, I got to trust this particular catalog, but this catalog, no way, man, <laughs> they've burned me one too many times. I mean, it, it happened with the best catalogs. You just kind of had to go with, it was like, it was like, it was like, it was like uh, you had to do like cost benefit analysis analyses every time you had to recalibrate your opinion of like a record record catalog. Like I was like, okay, so Discord records 001 through like 040, I'm cool with. After that, like I'm not sure how I feel about this about this record label right. or like SST through like 1987, I think is really rad. And then beyond that, I'm like, I don't know. Once they got Sade Vitus, they just sound like Sabbath sabbath to me i'm not so into it um and then it, it, it but like touch and go seemed reliably 
off the wall. Like it was either like it, like the Dickies were sort of straight. There were bands like um, Shellac and Jesus Lizard, which had that like Chicago, deep Chicago Steve Albini sound. And then there were bands they would like re release stuff by Chrome. And then there was like the Butthole Surfers, where I was like, I don't know what the fuck I'm listening to. So it was it was like there was enough sort of variety that I was like, okay, I may be disappointed, but I'm always going to be surprised. Right. <laughs> totally. Yeah. That's a, that's a good attitude to go go into that with. And so then as, as you started to kind of look past high school, um, did you ever have any aspirations to like where music was going to be your thing? Like you were going to do a touring band and like this was going to be, you know, the summation of your efforts? Uh, or was that always something where you're like, dude, I, I can't rely on tour or putting out records or anything like that? Oh, I wanted to go on tour so bad for a long time. Well after, like well into my 20s, I really wanted to tour. But I think that it requires a certain a certain nomadism that I just don't have. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of people that I, I played music with in high school or played shows around in high school went on to be in like maybe not famous bands, but at least bands that toured. Like uh, the Wolf Eyes guys were around when I was in high school. There's a guy named Fred Thomas who I was friends with and lived with after high school who is now has a band called Saturday Looks Good to Me that's on polyvinyl or has been on polyvinyl. Um, Like I said, my former bandmate Michael Troutman was in Awesome Color. My former bandmate Andrew WK is Andrew WK. Um, So like there were all these people who right after high school started these careers – Maybe not careers where they were supporting themselves full time, but careers where they were touring a certain type amount of the year. And I was like, I really want to do that. And then when, you know, it came time for the rubber to hit the road, I was like, I don't know that I have it in me to actually do this. Really? So what, um, because usually, obviously, with youth comes um, the, you know, the recklessness that you have where it's just like, oh, yeah, like, whatever. I mean, I, I started touring when I was 16, and it was like I, I had no right to think that I could do that. And, of course, it was like an abysmal failure for a good year. But then <laughs> the but then once, I you know, you get your training wheels off and you start to understand where it's like, okay, don't go to this promoter or whatever. But, like, so what, uh, where I, it sounds like you're practical, and it sounds like that kind of seeped into where it was like, no, I don't, I don't think I'm ready for that. Probably, uh, partly practicality. I'd say it was probably a little more cowardice. Um, I think that the, I, the prospect of touring was pretty terrifying to me. Plus, you know, my, the band that I was happiest with, the Butler, they, Alan went to college in Chicago and Michael had started a band called Lovesick, which was touring. And it just seemed like no one had time for it anymore. And that was the band that I was like, well, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen with these guys. I'm going to invest my time in these guys. And it didn't really seem like anybody was willing to make the investment anymore. So yeah, I kind of moved on. I was playing shows off and on up until a couple of years ago, just like sort of playing solo with um, – I had like a, like a sampler and uh, keyboards and I would do fucking weird electronic shit. Pardon the interruption here, but I want to tell you about an awesome service that I am very passionate about because I've used it multiple times. So Squarespace, you heard me talk about it at the very top of the show, but I'll give you a little personal anecdote to let you know what I used it for and how awesome it was. So a couple years ago, I ran a music festival with a friend of mine, and of course, we needed our own online platform to sell tickets, to inform people of the bands playing, all that sort of stuff. And I was like, you know, I I don't know what to do. I don't really know the mechanics of building a website besides like, you know, maybe signing up for something and that's kind of it. So I asked a friend and he was like, oh, dude, Squarespace, this will be so easy for you. And it was. It was amazing. The site looked completely professionally designed regardless of skill level, which honestly, as far as design is concerned, it's very low on my skill level. It was very intuitive, many, many easy-to-use tools to get whatever it is that you want to do on your site. Squarespace has state-of-the-art technology powering your site to ensure security and stability. Because let's be honest, if your site crashes, that's like the worst thing of all time. It's trusted by millions of people and some of the most respected brands in the world. And plans start at $8 a month. $8 a month to get your thing out of your head into the real world, and impacting people's lives. That's what I did with this music festival, and it was super, super easy. The website no longer exists, I, otherwise I would direct you to it. Super simple to update, it was awesome. So start your free trial site today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. And then, when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, please use the offer code WORDS 
W-O-R-D-S, to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, build it beautiful. I did. You should do it as well. We have a very incredible sponsor on the show this week, Creative Live. I have firsthand experience in seeing how these people conduct their courses and do their business, and it is awesome. So high quality, it blows my mind. So I'll break it down for you like this. So what they do is they take the luminaries within certain fields of creative arts, so songwriting, engineering, mixing, mastering, taught by people like... Tommy from Between the Buried and Me, members of Converge, Periphery, Dillinger Escape Plan. So they take these people, really, really focus on the intimate details of why they are successful at what they do, and then give you the tools on how to do this. It isn't just like some broad stroke class where it's like, oh yeah, like I'm not going to show you the mixing board that I'm using. It's like, no, here's the knob. I'm turning it. Here's the setting I use. It is very, very specific information that is incredibly valuable. And it's not just like some crappy YouTube tutorial. This is like high production value, multi-cameras, and so much good information. So visit creativelive.com backslash audio to see some free previews and to learn about these courses. Because like I said, it's awesome stuff. So if you're interested in any of those fields, which if you're listening to this show, you probably are, go to creativelive.com backslash audio, check out some samples, and then ultimately buy a few courses because they are such good stuff. I've bought a few and I do not regret them for one second. So thank you very much, Creative Live. Was there ever any element of, I guess, stage fright or the performance anxiety or anything like that? Or was it, were you generally comfortable on stage? That yes, I had stage fright. But there's something that's so comforting about being in a band that is not around in any other kinds of stage performance. Like PJ and I are doing a live performance, our live reply all performance at the end of the month, and I'm fucking terrified. Like I'm just, I'm genuinely pretty scared. I know I'll be fine, and when I'm actually out on the stage, I'll be fine. But yeah, it's it's pretty scary to be on stage. But when you're in a band, this is this has always sort of been my guiding principle, especially since mechanically I'm not the best musician. I think that conceptually I can come up with pretty complex melody ideas, but uh, in terms of my actual technique, I'm not that great. So my philosophy was always, um, if I'm on the stage with five other people, no one will hear me screw up. It will be obscured by the other by the other instruments, sure. and that takes so much pressure off. You're you're your own worst critic, and no one ever hears your mistakes unless they're really, really, really big. Right? <laughs> yeah. Unless you have your guitar turned too loud, and then everyone notices that you, you're missing all those notes. Um, and that has definitely happened. Yes, that happens. <laughs> so w- it sounds like guitar was your 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 main driving force as far as all the bands that you were playing. And did you sing in any of them as well? I was never the singer. Um, the Butler, we all sang in Blue Onion. I sang backup. Um, I've never been very much into. Um, I've never really felt very comfortable. It's weird because I'd say that in that if you distilled what I do for a living, I'm a writer, but I've never been comfortable as a writer of lyrics, partially because I'm not a person who listens to lyrics too much. I tend to focus more on melodies. Like my brain is much better at remembering, processing, repeating melodies than it is remembering lyrics. I've never been much of a lyric writer and just sort of by, um, just as a result of that, I've never been much of a singer, but, uh, I have, I have sung, Definitely. So uh, I'm actually, I'm actually in a band right now, and I, we're playing our last show this Friday. <laughs> okay, and this, that that is the 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 nail in that coffin. <laughs> yes, uh, I mean, you know, it's a situation. I moved to New Jersey last year, and playing in a band with three people who are in Brooklyn is pretty difficult. And then our drummer is moving; she's moving to um, Kentucky. So that was sort of like, well, let's play one more show. We'll get out. We'll sort of finish this this thing. Sure. Um, but we haven't played a show in, I don't know, not quite a year. So it's like we're a pretty dormant band as it is. Right. Uh, so the, one last hurrah, one last excuse for everybody to get together in the same room. Exactly, exactly. And playing music is a lot of fun. It's not uh, when there's no pressure, when there's no expectation. I feel like there was always the expect. One of the things that made being in a band in high school so difficult and made 
the 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 existence of bands so fluid is like there was always sort of in the back of your mind the genuine belief that you were going to be famous. Yeah, I, I think it's it's completely true. I mean, I, I and I mean, famous is obviously a very relative term in at least in, in my application in regards to you know independent music. But it's like, yeah, you look at these, like, man, that would be rad if like we could turn into like no effects or like bad religion. Like you look yeah. at, you look at that and it's like, dude, that's successful. But then, you know, of course, like you ask your parents and they're just like bad religion. Who? I don't know what that is. <laughs> I mean, like the metric for success for me was like, what if we toured with jawbreaker? Right. You know, like, that's huge. That'd be yeah, yeah. huge. <laughs> totally. <laughs> and I, I do love that, that juxtaposition of what you define as success. I mean, you know, it can be applied over any, uh, art form that you're doing where it's like, oh man, you know, whatever podcasting, I wish we could become this, like this podcast. And then you get there and it's just like, oh, that was it. Like, <laughs> or then um, I wish we could play this show and then you do it. And it's like, oh, well, that was it. Oh, okay. Moving on. <laughs> I, I do have to say that reply all is like the sort of the exception that proves that rule. Like I kind of feel like the podcast that I'm making now, it's like getting so much more attention and act and like, and like, kind words than anything that I've ever done before, like way more than I anticipated. I figured that it would just be this thing that we would labor at and hopefully one day, just like, hopefully one day it would be this thing where it was like, it's self-sustaining and people were paying attention to it. But like the response has just been incredible. So this is the one time where like the actual achievement, like we've achieved way more than I expected us to in the not quite a year that we've been around. How long? What is today? What is this month? It's June. So we've been around for seven months. It's crazy. It's crazy. Uh, so humbling and amazing. And I, I, this is like the happiest I've ever been at a job. It's also the most tired I've ever been at a job, but it's definitely just so incredible. Right, right. Well, I think I, I think it's, you know, kind of going back to what we were initially talking about in regards to the the DIY mentality that exists, you know, very much so in the way that, uh, you know, it, it takes to start a band and obviously to do all these other uh, things that aren't directly correlated to any sort of financial success in any capacity. Because, you know, if you're putting out right. your own seven inch, you're like, well, <laughs> I might as well just burn four Four grand, like there you go. <laughs> I think there's still. I think that one of our we Blue Onion put out a seven inch, and I think that uh, I think that the lead singer still has three hundred or four hundred of them. That's be- that's beautiful. <laughs> and yeah. that was like nineteen ninety six or ninety seven. So because so. you probably pressed a thousand of them because it was more cheaper. There is something that's so uh, you know interesting where it's like because I've uh, you know people just because I, I've done you know music whatever professionally as far as like working at record labels and sort of the behind the scenes stuff for so long you know you get in these conversations with people who try to uh, link diy culture to like oh yeah it's exactly like being like an entrepreneur or like you know being in silicon valley and i'm like dude but when you're in silicon valley like the idea is like to make money <laughs> you didn't have any inkling of that when you were like we said putting at your first seven inch or whatever it's like you right. had you're just like, well, hopefully we'll break even. And that's like the pinnacle. That's like the mountaintop of success. I mean, it's to me, maybe my sights are set, set too low, but to me, that's still, the, that's still the metric of success. As long as I'm not in the red, I'm right. very happy. <laughs> totally. Well, I, I mean, honestly, I, I definitely equate that to, uh, you know, pr- probably the, the, the culture that you were raised around where it's like, yeah, as long as I'm able to like do what I care about, which obviously, like you were saying, is the the show that you're doing. To me, that's that that is the bar of success. Where it's like, as long as I can keep doing it, then like that's cool, man. Like I don't I don't need to conquer these other like seven platforms that people commonly try to because you know I guess that's what you're supposed to do in life. Uh, I used to say to PJ before Reply All started, he would be like, well, "What do you want? Like, what do you want?" And I was like, "I want to be able to quietly work on things that I'm proud of with people I trust." That's it. That's like all I want. For anyone who's creative, it's like surprising how difficult that is. There's so much, there are so many hurdles that you need to overcome to be able to do that, that uh, I'm really, really, really grateful to have gotten to the point where I am actually making work that I'm proud of with people I trust. It's it's shocking and humbling and so exciting. No, it's rad. Do you, um, 
do you see kind of the principles that obviously you learned in regards to everything as far as like, you know, the, the, the political messages that you were exposed to and obviously all the, the radical politics and whatever else that you were exposed to um, in consuming the music you, when you were younger? Was, is there stuff that you see that you kind of, you know, either directly or indirectly apply to uh, the, not only your podcast, but just obviously the, the, the work that you've done um, outside of the context of the music scene? Journalistically, there are certain principles that I abide by in terms of fact checking and, you know, attribution and things like that. But so much of like what we do actually feels like every week it feels like going to a show and finding out they don't have a PA. It's like, oh, we've got this new terrible problem and we need to improvise. Right. So we need to borrow another band's amp so that we can use that as the PA. Um, Like it's like every week there's this new situation like it's not we are not in uh, we are not at a point gimlet as a company or reply all as a show where there is a system that runs smoothly week to week that we can rely on we're getting there and i think that that is really exciting but that takes a long time when you're creating something from scratch so every week feels like there's a bit of improvisation where we have to like uh, overcome a hurdle and like we're learning how to do that as we go and that flexibility like like just being scrappy and being able to handle that kind of stuff like definitely I learned that from from those situations right. those terrible situations where you'd show up and someone in the drummer would be like I didn't think I needed to bring my drum set like you know uh, th- that kind of stuff happened all the fucking time right. so <laughs> right so <laughs> politically I don't know you know I definitely think that like I definitely think that my politics were shaped by um, not so much the music, but like the culture around the music. Like if you would read a political essay in Punk Planet, it would stay with you. You'd be like, oh, okay, I just read this. I don't know. I just read this retrospective on cap and jazz. I'll stick around for this blah, blah, blah. I'll stick around for this other thing. And it, and it, and it, I was like, oh, okay, Th- this makes sense. This like political treatise makes sense to me. I feel like... I feel like I understand the world a little better in the same way that like learning about new music helps you untangle the knots of being an adolescent. Like reading that, reading the stuff that was alongside of that music helps you untangle the knot, untangle some knots. And like, yeah, definitely it is. It's informed the way that I live my life. Totally. Yeah, no, I, I think I like that illustration that you're talking about where it's like, it does, you know, it, it, it awakens something. And I know that sounds like totally new age or cliche or whatever you want to call it. But it's like, you know, when I first heard like propaganda or Rage Against the Machine, it was like, oh, wait a minute. Like, not everything is right in this world. And like, it just, totally. yeah, like you said, you just start to pull on that string. And then all of a sudden you're you've opened up a labyrinth of like, oh my gosh, there's all of this stuff that I need to pay attention to. And I, I think there's just that sort of natural curiosity that starts to happen when you dive headfirst into something like, you know, these different factioned music scenes. And it's like, it's so, um, you know, it's a little more linear when it's like you, you get into Star Wars as an example, you know? It's like that that is, you can obviously take deep, deep dives into that, but it, it's you know, it's in a silo <laughs> and you feel like that there are, are implications that you can take from it, but how that practically applies to the outside world, um, I, I feel is, is, is a little bit less than, you know, whatever, a, a political punk band or something like that. I will say that a band that, uh, that whose lyrics did stick with me a lot was, uh, Dead Kennedy simply because I, I like, first of all, their guitar tone sounded no, nothing like anything I'd ever heard before. It was like so trebly and like, it just sounded so bright compared to like a lot of the other hardcore bands I was listening to where the music was really, where um, the guitar sounded really kind of like, um, it was like kind of dark and sludgy. And Jello Biafra's voice was just so fucking weird. It was right. like, it was like hard to ignore. So that was a band where like, I was like, oh, okay, well, I can't not pay attention to this guy's warbly voice. Um, what's he talking about? Right. And then, and then it was also weird because, you know, I started listening to it in like 94, 95 and, you know, the Reagan era had long since passed. Uh, so I kind of had to go figure out what the fuck he was talking about. Yeah. It's like, I was like, what is, what is, like, what is Reaganomics? What's trickle down economics? You know, what is all this crap? Right. So you feel like you have to not only reckon with, like you were saying, all those musical facets, but then you had to reckon with this, um, 
you know, this political ideology that you were like, dude, I don't, um, I don't know what any of this is. I guess I better find out. Yeah, I had no well, California Uber Alice is like one of the most menacing sounding songs in the world. It's just got this really creepy atmosphere that's really cool, that's really unique sounding. And I had no clue who Jerry Brown was. <laughs> I had no idea who they were talking about. Right. You're like, I know he's a governor because they use it in the lyric. That's it. <laughs> yeah. He's Governor Jerry Brown. He smiles and he never frowns. Right. right? <laughs> and so then uh it sounds to me that that your uh your your passion in music obviously still exists because like, like you mentioned, you know, there's the, there's a notion where it's like once you hit a certain age range or bracket, you're supposed to, you know, whatever, turn in your, your, your membership card and not care as much either about new music or, um, you know, trying to f- find that sense of discovery, whether it is specifically with, you know, punk or hardcore, or whether it's like obviously the different music genres that are out there. Um, so you, you still care, it sounds like. I do. I have to admit that like I've kind of my taste has expanded pretty dramatically to lots of different style genres of music from like I was very narrowly into sort of weird avant-garde and then really, really heavy music when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. And I would say that I'm into much more many different kinds of genres now. I would also say that like I'm not into new music as much as I used to be, but I listen to music for hours a day every day. Um, right. I, I have a 90 minute commute and there's only so many podcasts a person can listen to before their brain starts to hurt. So I do listen to a lot of music on my commute. Um, and I, uh, I do, I think that I have this terror. I just had a son and, and I have this terrible fear that he's not going to understand music. And I'm not someone who's professionally trained. I took guitar lessons, but like I, I mostly can pick things up by ear and it's like, that's one of my greatest hopes for him. Like, I will feel like I will have been a success as a parent if my kid plays an instrument and can pick stuff up by ear. Because it just, like, there's a community there. There's, there, you can sort of help, it helps you find, like, music helps you build an identity. Music helps you understand the world. There's so much in it that I feel is responsible for making me who I am today that, um, I just hope that like <laughs> – I'm going off on a tangent here. But I would say that like this past summer I went to a wedding and as part of the ceremony, the one of, it, the bride, one of the brides um, played a Beach Boys song with her dad and her sister. And I was like, oh my god, this is the fucking most beautiful thing in the world and I'm so jealous that I didn't grow up in a family where everybody played an instrument. This feels like it would have brought us close in a way that like defies description. Mm-hmm. So like my hope is that my kid understands to or like like can appreciate all of the things that music can give you. It can give you like community. It can help you understand the world. It can give you – it can bring you closer to your family. Like it's it's really – it's really special. It's really singular. Yeah. As no, a medium. I, I couldn't – I mean obviously I couldn't agree more but I definitely – I mean I reflect on the same feelings. I have a four-year-old son and I definitely go through a lot of those same emotions where it's like, okay, like I'm so neurotic about it to where it's just like, okay, I can't – you know, I, I'm not going to let him listen to any of this stuff because it's not going to make any sense right now. But it's like so I'm, I'm just going to encourage like, dude, you like to listen to the Thomas the Train soundtrack? Dude, let's sing along. I'm going to air drum. You're going to play air guitar. Like let's – Let's just get you caring about music and like ultimately just because it has given me so much and obviously like you said, it's given you so much that you feel like at the core of it, you're like, I just want you to care even like, you know, either as much or, or even more than me because it's, it's, it is such an easy way to identify and make sense of the world as opposed to just being like, well, yeah, just like, uh, you know, get into baseball. It's like, well, <laughs> I, yeah, that's a, that's another thing that people can do, but like, you know, can it, can, you know, are you going to be a major league baseball player? Like, no, but you could probably pick up an instrument and play it kind of reflecting on, on your, uh, your experience that you, of what you're, you're currently doing with, with reply all, um, and I really like the equation of what you're you're setting up in regards to the just sheer improvisational uh, manner without obviously trying to, um, you know, make it look like you're just, you know, a bunch of fools running around in a room, which I'm sure at times it feels like that. The, the idea of being able to communicate kind of, you know, who you are as a person through the medium that you have chosen um, – is that something that you know you and you and PJ kind of go over where it's just like okay like we'll reveal this much but I don't want to go over over this line or is that something that you're you're kind of still trying to uh evolve into uh there's definitely stuff that 
I record and then afterward I'm like, I don't want to use that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all that said, I think that like our relationship on the air is a semi-accurate representation of our relationship off the air. It's like amped up a little bit for comedy's sake. Like I do think we, we do genuinely drive each other crazy, but we don't drive each other as crazy as I think we do on the radio. Um, so it's the, there's a there's a sort of simultaneous reality and unreality to it where it is us being Alex and PJ, but we're also sort of playing Alex and PJ because uh, I don't know. I think that we're not as interesting <laughs> as people. Uh, you have to be. You have to. You have to like make a conscious effort to make yourself a little more interesting. So, yes, there's stuff that I pull back from talking about, but generally, I kind of think of myself as this discrete entity that is not always the person that is on the air. Does that make sense? Sure, sure. It's like there's in the same way as like the uh, whatever, when you, you you know using uh, a band life as, as an example where it's like if a person was to watch, like, you know maybe you perform or, you know, I was always the lead screamer in every band that I played in. So like if a person saw me do what I did on stage and then met me in person, they would be like oh Ray, like you seem like a normal dude, but why are you yelling up there? Like, there, there's just a, a heightened version of yourself that's up there. Like, not only for sheer entertainment, but just the fact that you kind of need to embody a different spirit in a way. And again, I know that sounds so metaphysical, but like, yeah, I, I can see what you're saying. Where it's like, there's this, there's a version of yourself that is that is being represented that maybe doesn't directly apply to you, but it's 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 in the same ballpark. Yeah, yeah, totally. The last thing that I want to hit on, which is, is somewhat of a, a tangential thing, but your uh, so your your wife started that blog where basically she rifled through your record collection in order to sort of make sense of what it was that you were obviously into as a kid and what you're like now. Yeah, it's a little okay. dormant since we've had our son, but I think she's planning on getting back to it this summer. I, I, I of course showed my wife that cause I, my, my record collection takes up my entire home office and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's borderline absurd. So my wife, I showed my wife the, your, your wife's blog and she was just like, oh my gosh, I would never do that. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I can, I can see where you're coming from on the idea that, um, she's actually mentioned before where it's like you, me was so passionate about music and it kind of snuffed out whatever she, whatever corner she felt like she had on music. Um, was there any sort of like, you know, uh, any sort of emotional play within that context where it's just like, was your wife like into music? And then she was like, dude, Alex, you are, this is your thing. This is not my thing. <laughs> I mean, I feel like there were, I feel like she knew the records that she liked from within my collection, but there was stuff that like, I didn't listen to when she was around because I didn't think she would like it and stuff that she didn't – she just wasn't interested in. She would pick up the – she like wouldn't pick it up because it wasn't familiar to her. And it's not like she's totally musically illiterate but she likes what she likes which is you know like indie pop stuff. I mean her tastes are much broader than that. That's a gross oversimplification but right. – um, but it was like um, she likes what she likes and – she wasn't looking for new stuff to listen to. And then one day she was like, she was like, you know, we've moved that fucking record collection like seven times in the time that we've been together. <laughs> and I've probably listened to a tenth or a fifteenth of it. Why don't I just listen to the rest of it? What's I mean, what else is in there? And I was I was sort of thinking like this would be a lot of fun. And then I was like, I was secretly, you know, uh tenting my fingers like Mr. Burns, being like, I can hardly wait till she gets to the Arabon radar. You know, I was like, very excited <laughs> right. for her to get to the weird stuff. And then she got to it and she was like, I can see the appeal of this. I get it. And I was like, Oh my God, I've totally been underestimating you for so long. Right. Like you're so much cool like you i've been i've loved you forever and now i just am finding out that you're like so much fucking cooler than i could have ever imagined right um like she did a bad brains review she listened to the bad brains album she got to the end she was like i don't get this i'm gonna listen to it again and she listened to it again she was like oh yeah yeah attitude uh <laughs> that was like such a satisfying review to read especially since she wrote it while i was at work she's a teacher so she was home for the summer and i was like oh yeah yeah this is amazing it's amazing hearing someone discover this and then there's like classics where like she just hasn't heard them 
Like, you know, she knew London Calling, but she'd never heard the first Clash album. And I played it for her, or she played it for herself. Watching her delight at that album was like so satisfying. Yeah. I mean, it's the same way as like if you're exposing your, you know, your friend to a record that you're really passionate about and like they actually get it because, you know, usually if you show a record to a friend, it's like, oh, I'll get around to it. Then six months later, they're like, dude, you were right. It's like, well, yeah, I told you like six months ago, but yeah, it's, it's, (laughs) it's cool to be able to watch that, that sense of discovery kind of wash over. It's like, oh, wow. Like, I'm, I'm glad that this actually impacted you. Yeah. It's, it's been really fun. And like, there's just records where like, I'm shocked that she liked it. And there's been records where I'm shocked that she didn't like it. And it made me realize that like, that like, there's no uniformity to taste. Everybody has nuances and everybody has like valid reasons for liking and disliking stuff. And like watching her hate on blonde redhead and love, I don't know. I'm trying to think of something that she really liked that I was totally shocked by. Um, but, but like watching her hate on the stuff that I expected her to like and love stuff that I expected her to hate has just been like immensely satisfying and eye-opening for me um, in that I was just like, oh, there's so much more to this person that I've been together, that I've been with for 10 years than I ever imagined. Like there's so much more to learn. Yeah. It's, it's great. Yeah, no, that, that's super exciting. That's, and it, it's obviously a fun way for you two to engage each other as a couple as opposed to, um, you know, just never touching the records in the first place. <laughs> right, right. Well, dude, I really, really appreciate you hanging out with me. This is uh, this was fun for me. I hope it was uh, obviously better than being like, oh, hey, so when did you like the internet? <laughs> <laughs> so there is our discussion with Alex, and I hope you found it enlightening. And like I said, if you're not listening to his show by now, you're really missing out because I actually just shoved an episode of his into my ear holes uh, about uh, yesterday, the day before about the bureaucracy of government websites and the DMV. And it was such an interesting story. So they're doing great work. They're part of the Gimlet Media Foundation Association, whatever you'd like to call it, uh, that's pumping out probably some of the highest quality podcasts that are around right now. So do yourself a favor. You will find a treasure trove of awesome material with their show and the shows that are affiliated with that from startup to mystery show to everything else that they have uh, in their in their dockets, so to speak. So anyways, Tom Richfield is the producer as always for this show. Thank you, buddy. You're just making my life easier by helping uploading these shows as I'm traveling and visit the show's website, 100 wordspodcastcom And if you are a first time listener, I really appreciate it. Dive back in the archives. We've got a hundred and some odd more episodes for you to digest and consume. And you can also email the show 100 wordspodcast at gmail.com. There we go. Well, I'll see you all next week and please be safe, everybody. <laughs>